The scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bring to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let the man down on the mat on which he lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, he and he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know this, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the Lord be with you. I want you to know how grateful Judith and I are to, to be here on this glorious morning. And I'm also grateful for the hospitality that the members of the pastor nominating committee has just showered upon us. We're really grateful for that. And then also for the staff of National Presbyterian Church. It's been about 40 days now, a little over 40 days, since my, my mother passed away. And so many of you reached out to us, virtual strangers, that's really who we are. And we received letters and cards, and we received a wonderful floral arrangement. The day of my mother's funeral, we walked into this, into this sanctuary, and off to the side of the casket was a beautiful floral arrangement. And it said from the staff of the National Presbyterian Church, and that touched us in a very profound way. And so we're grateful to that, for that. Some of, as Quinn said, some of my, my siblings are here with us today, and I know some are watching online. And again, on behalf of our entire family, we want to thank you, the folks of National Presbyterian Church, for your prayers and for your love and for your support. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. May these words and thoughts be a blessing to your people. You are our rock, you are our Lord, you are our Redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And so in preparation for this moment, I went back and I read through parts of Mark's gospel, read through that first chapter again. And I noticed as I was reading through, my eyes landed once again on verse 41, Mark 1, 41. And it tells this very touching story of Jesus seeing 
this man with leprosy, and we're told that Jesus was full of pity, full of compassion, full of mercy, and he reached out his hand and he touched the leper, and Mark loves the word immediately, but immediately the leprosy vanished and he was made clean, and Jesus then emphatically told the man, I want you to keep this under wraps. I want you to be silent. I don't want you to tell anyone. What I want you to do, though, is to go to the priest. Go show yourself to the priest and make the necessary sacrifices. And, of course, the man does the exact opposite. He is so, over, he's so full of, of gratitude and, and thanksgiving that he goes out and he spreads the news abroad. And we're told that because of this man's actions, Jesus could no longer walk openly in public. And in many ways, it's this kind of popularity that sets the stage for what we read in Mark chapter 2, where we're told that Jesus returns to Capernaum, and his popularity, of course, of course precedes him. And like bees to a honeypot, a large crowd when people found out that Jesus was home, a large crowd gathered at his home where he was staying, and the crowd was so large that they blocked the entrance to his, to his house. And instead of shooing them away, which may be what I would do, get away from my house, Jesus seized the moment and spoke the word of God to them. And while he's preaching, these four men show up carrying a paralyzed man to Jesus, but they cannot gain access to the house. I remember back in 2015 and in 2019, a group of us had the privilege and the honor of going to Israel and Palestine on two different occasions. And while we were there, on both occasions, we visited, we visited Capernaum. And when you walk into that little town, you see the sign, Capernaum, Jesus' town. And it was such a blessing to be there. And while we were there, we saw the excavated homes, the ruins of these homes where people once lived. And it dawned on me how small these homes are. The typical Capernaum home, based on what I've been reading, is that it's no more than five to six meters in length. And the size of that home could easily fit in your kitchen or in my kitchen. You get the picture, this small home, the large crowd, how will they get this man to Jesus? And his four friends, I, I call them paramedics, they found a way. They removed layers of that house, created an opening large enough, and then lowered their friend at the feet of Jesus. And you know, without their help, this man has no way of reaching Jesus. And there is a, there's, a, there's another sermon, if you have me back, there's another sermon in here about the mission of the church. If this man didn't have this, these friends, there's no way he would have made it to Jesus. Everyone inside and outside of the house watching this spectacle, they're thinking, we know what's going to happen next. In fact, if there, if there were folks on the strip of Vegas if they were given a chance, they would put money down because they were confident and would be confident that Jesus is going to heal this man's atrophied legs. But much to everyone's surprise, Jesus doesn't 
address the man's physical needs at first. He addresses the man's metaphysical needs. Jesus speaks to a fundamental human need. It is so fundamental, it is so basic to our humanity that it would not be an, exa an exaggeration to say that every person in this room, every person where you work and in your neighborhood has this deep need. And it's the need for forgiveness. Whether it's the forgiveness from another person or forgiveness from God, but we're all standing in need of forgiveness. And when Jesus saw the faith of these people, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. They're canceled. And some wiseacre wrote that when Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven, he was actually forgiving them for destroying his roof. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. Because when Jesus said those words, he sparked what some might call a mini theological controversy, or maybe it's a major theological controversy that I have summarized then in three basic questions, and that's really what I want to talk to you about. These three fundamental questions. Who is Jesus? What is his mission? What is his purpose? And what does it mean to be human? Who is Jesus? I've always been taught that the entire Bible is about Jesus, that when you, when you read the Bible, the subject and the object of Scripture, that it's Jesus. That Mark, if you read the book of Mark, he reveals Jesus as God, the one who knows our hearts, the one who sees our sins and forgives us, who heals our diseases. And ultimately, as you read through the Gospel of Mark, it ends in a, very, in a very strong, powerful note that Jesus is the Son of God. He overcame death, he overcame the grave, and he will come again in power and great glory to rule and to reign. But the scribes are sitting there. Mark points out the scribes. They don't share my view. They're not fans of Jesus. Because in their minds, Jesus has already committed one infraction. He healed on the Sabbath. And they're sitting there. And he's about to commit, in their minds, a second infraction, and that's blasphemy. Notice their question, or questions. Why does this fellow, this man, this person, speak in this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And I want you to know, my brothers and sisters, that this is a serious charge. This is what I call a 911 kind of uh, reaction. This is, a, this is a reaction that ultimately will result in death. To commit blasphemy is to commit and to, and to experience death. And so their question, who is this fellow, possibly demonstrates their ignorance. It could demonstrate their disdain or their rejection of Jesus' identity and mission, but clearly they are not seeing Jesus the way we now see him. Well, here's what I want you to hear this morning, the skepticism of the scribes, and maybe your skepticism, maybe those of you who are watching, you are not there yet. You are maybe sitting where the scribes sit. You're a seeker. You just want to check this person out and know what's going on. Well, I want you to know that being a skeptic doesn't make you a bad person. 
doesn't make them a bad person because you can't know what you don't know. And despite their Torah training, despite their reading, their voluminous reading of the prophets, they still couldn't understand why this rabbi, this man, would say your sins are forgiven. Because in their minds, and they're correct, only God has the power to cancel sin. And so for them, it was just inconceivable that Jesus is now standing in the place of God and saying, your sins are forgiven. And you know, to a certain degree, I can identify with the scribes. Some of you may know I was born on the third largest island in the West Indies, the small island of Jamaica. And my mother, she was a deeply, deeply devoted woman of God. And my father, for many, many years, he did eventually become a believer, but for many years my father had doubts. Sometimes he refused to believe in God. And without a doubt, my father saw no value in doing what all of us are doing this morning, sitting in church. But I grew up in a home, thanks to my mother, where you heard about the name of Jesus. And for me, Jesus was everywhere. He appeared in the movies I was watching. I heard his name being called in the songs we were singing at my mother's church. And then during all those chapel services that we were all forced to go, I went to an all-boys high school, and we had chapel every morning. I heard the name of Jesus. And in, in the Jamaican culture, the name of Jesus is everywhere, for good or bad. Same way in the American culture. And back then, I am sure he was calling me, but I wasn't listening. And you wouldn't find me willingly running with him. I went my way. But somewhere around the age of 17 years old, I found myself attending a retreat. Can't, and to my best recollection, I, I still can't remember how I ended up there. I'm guessing it was my oldest sister, Joy, bribing me maybe, encouraging me, goading me, and I ended up going to this retreat, and it was a great retreat. It was at this retreat that I, for the first time and the last time, put on a pair of boxing gloves, and I tried to mimic Muhammad Ali, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and after less than one round, I wasn't floating, and I wasn't stinging, I was being stung. And it was instant retirement. I put the gloves down, and I never wore them again. It was at this retreat. You have to understand now, these were all first experiences for me. It was at this retreat that I went out into an open field with a boomerang in my hand, and with all the strength of a 17-year-old, I hurled that thing into the sky because I'd seen on TV where when you throw that boomerang, it somehow makes that circle back. And I was waiting for that, and I hurled the thing, and it just kept going. And then in the distance, I heard glass breaking, <laughs> and I took off running. <laughs> but it was a great retreat. But you know, it was at that retreat where about 200 of us were gathered in a room. I was sitting somewhere near the back, and as I looked toward the front, there was this Caucasian brother standing up there from America, 
and he apologized that he would not be able to deliver a full message because of an unexpected family emergency. But he said that he would read a passage and share a few words, and then he would leave immediately for the airport in Montego Bay. And I'll be honest with you, I did feel some sympathy for the man. But honestly, many of us sitting around me didn't mind that it was going to be a short service. But I'm here to tell you this morning that his message was short, but it was piercing. He read from Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. And I'm telling you, that was like newsflash. That was breaking news for me. When he started talking about God wants you to present your body, I never heard of that before. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he said, he read, do not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by a mind that is renewed so that, and this is the part that got to me, so that you can discern. And you, you have to understand as a teenager, people come up to you all the time and say, so what are you going to do when? And I heard those words, so that you can discern what is the will of God, that will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. He spoke about purpose for living and devotion and love and service to Christ in ways that I had never heard before. And his word landed with a lot of the friends I was with. It touched their hearts. It touched my heart. And it was during this retreat, put all the mischief aside, where God's holy scripture became important to me and Jesus revealed himself to me. But this time, by the grace of God, Jesus, and I really mean that, he caused me to know him as Messiah, as King, as Savior, a son of God, a savior of the world. And that day when I responded to the wooing of the Holy Spirit, I didn't do it because, you know, the world was coming to an end. My life was a wreck. I had been an alcoholic or this or that. It wasn't any of those things. I wasn't struggling. And I know many of you hear the word. You hear, the, you hear our culture telling us that if you are a person of faith, if you go to church on a regular basis, poor you. It's just a sign that you're weak. You're weak-minded. And religion is just a crutch. That wasn't my issue. I was captain of my high school basketball team. I was doing well in school. I had a relationship with this cute Jamaican girl called Judith. <laughs> and my life was great. Life was good. But that day, that day, Jesus as King and Messiah and Savior of the world, he won my heart. And I returned home a different person. I started reading the Bible. And I couldn't put it down. I read from Genesis to the end of the Bible. Maybe 80% didn't make sense, but that 20% continued to renew my mind. And here I am, it's 2023, and somebody would say, get over it. Well, I can. The impact of that retreat is still with me. And to this day, when I wake up in the morning, it is still my yearning. Lord, I want to know you, as Paul says and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of, 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 of your sufferings and being made conformable unto your death. That's my desire. And it all started at a retreat. 
And my question to you this morning is, and, and, and we really need to hear this because the Pharisees were there, the scribes were there, the people were there, but they didn't know him. And here we are in church, and I have to ask the question, do you know him? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a name on a page? And for some people, that's all Jesus is. Is he a high holy day figure to whom you give a, a polite nod at Christmas and at Easter? You see, when, when, when you don't know him, you're going to find yourself like me. Sure, I know about Jesus, but I really don't know him. You're going to be like my father, resistant, indifferent, or just casually watching us kind of do our church thing. So when the scribes ask the question, how can you forgive sin? We're told that Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew their questions. And by forgiving sin and healing the man's paralysis, Jesus was doing a couple things. He was announcing through word and deed that the kingdom of God is here. One of the signs of the kingdom of God, one of the signs of the kingdom of God is that healings begin to happen. But the second thing Jesus was doing, he was giving them a glimpse of what the world would look like when Christ in all of his splendor and his glory is returning to reign, new heavens and new earth. You get a glimpse of that. So again, important question, who is Jesus? What's his purpose? But here's the last question. What does it mean to be human? And I go back to the scriptures and they remind us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're icons of God. We are made just a little bit lower than the angels. We're crowned with glory and great honor. But that glorious image of God within us has been marred by sin. And because of that, what has happened to our humanity is that we have become need-driven creatures. We're never satisfied. And St. Augustine was, was, was spot on when he says that we all have this God-shaped vacuum inside of us, and we're trying to fill that thing. We're trying to fill up that neediness within us. And some of us try money, and we try sex, and we try power, and we try things, but it still doesn't fill us up. And we continue to turn to other alternatives. A lot of people are bemoaning the fact that people don't go to church anymore, and yet we are living in the most, the most anxious, religiously sensitive culture than we have ever lived in before, where people are seeking for something, seeking for some divine experience. In February 18th of this year, one of my favorite actors, Tom Sizemore, died. He played the role of Sergeant Horvath in the 1998 Oscar-winning film Saving Private Ryan. His rise to fame, his accumulation of great wealth in the 90s was described as meteoric, but it was short-lived. Because by the early 2000s, drugs, domestic violence against women, all kinds of legal problems, prison caused this talented man's career to implode and sink into a sea of oblivion. Tom Sizemore in 2013 wrote his autobiography. Let me quote a few lines for you. He says, I was a guy who had come from very little and risen to the top. I had the multi-million dollar house. I was driving the Porsche. I, I partially owned a restaurant with Robert De Niro. 
And then he confesses, and now I have absolutely nothing. He says, I led an interesting life, but I can't tell you, and this got to me when I read this, but I can't tell you what I'd give, what I would give to be the guy you didn't know anything about, and I knew exactly what he was talking about. He just wanted a normal life. Maybe he wished he could go back and live in Detroit. Just kind of live in anonymity, just be normal, have a little peace. But unfortunately, where he was in his life, he was, he was famous for all the wrong reasons. And the Bible has something to say about that kind of humanity. The Bible is, is pinpoint accurate in describing our condition. And it's not a problem just to actors. Every one of us here today, we're building our identity on something besides Jesus. Whether it's to succeed in your chosen field, whether it's to make a certain amount of money so you can retire at a certain age, whether it's to have a certain kind of relationship, or even, or even just to get up and walk. We're all saying, if, if I could just get this, if I could just accomplish that, I would give everything to get to this thing, then I'd be okay. And so you're looking for that person. You're looking for that thing to kind of lift you to a place of whether it's prominence or to lift you from mediocrity and loneliness, from insignificance. And in so doing, here's what we all do. We then make our wish our savior, our summum bonum, our highest good. And of course, Somebody came to me years ago and said, Ray, you know, you, you, this is your savior. I would have said, you don't know what you're talking about. But that's really what we do. We make that, that, that thing, that wish, that dream our savior. And at the end of the day, when we get our wishes and our hopes and our dreams, when they're fulfilled, we look around and we say to ourselves, okay, I'm here now. I've reached the Mount Everest of my dreams. Why am I not still happy? Why am I not happy? And the answer to that is we've distorted our deepest wish, our deepest dreams into our Savior, so much so that when we finally have it, it seems to turn on us. And I think this is what Jesus is saying to every one of us today, that this man comes to me with a deep need for healing of the body, but I want him to go deeper. I can hear Jesus saying to the man, you're underestimating the depth of your need. And I would urge you to read the writings of Ecclesiastes again if you haven't read it in a while and hear what the preacher says, that all of these things that we're, we're, we're striving for, we're pursuing, he calls them havel, wind, vanity. And I can just imagine the man, as his friends are carrying him, maybe he's, he's saying to himself, if only I could walk again, I would be so happy. I would run, I would jump, I'd be like everyone else, and I would never, if I could just walk again, I'd never be unhappy again. But Jesus says to him, I want you to go deeper, because when I heal your body, when I give you exactly what you want, two months from now, four months from now, six months from now, the thrill will be gone, the roots of discontent will come springing up once more, and you're going to start searching for that next thing. And so Jesus says to the man, I want you to go deeper. 
And I think this is what happened to my beloved actor, Tom Sizemore. He got what he wanted. He reached Mount Everest, but quickly he found out that fame and money and women and all the accolades didn't, didn't carry enough freight to satiate his needy soul. And sadly, and it is sad, his life imploded. Dr. Carson is a wonderful New Testament professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and he wrote a book years ago that I've read and I've reread, and I would urge you, if you've never read this book, to pick it up. It's called Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And this is what Dr. Carson says. Let me read a few of his lines here. He says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a, a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin our alienation from God, our profound rebellion, our death. And so God sent us a Savior. And National Presbyterian Church, I'm here this morning to tell you that you and I, we need a Savior. We need someone who has the power to fill those empty places in our lives that nothing else and no one else will be able to fill except God alone. That great statement in the Westminster Catechism asks that question that what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man, the chief end of woman is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. And until you start doing that, you're going to be the neediest soul on planet earth. And so I'm saying to you this morning that forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs, it meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. It brings the greatest blessing. And it gives you the most lasting results. Here's a tragedy. The greatest disorder is to think that we are okay. I'm okay. I don't need any help. That would be the tragedy. I pray this morning that you will remember those old songs, songs that my grandmother used to sing, my mother used to sing, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. And I hope there is someone here, maybe even watching us online, who is willing to just say, you know, forget the pretenses, forget the buttoned-up life, forget trying to look good. I'm needy, and only God can meet that need. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, God, we pray this morning that you would never allow us to think that we can stand by ourselves and do not need you. You are our greatest 
need. You are our greatest treasure, and may you become our one desire. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen. Amen.